everyone, Patrick Gray here at OSSERT's 2014 conference. Our coverage of this event brought to you by Datacom TSS, FireEye and Arbor Networks. Big thanks to those sponsors. And our coverage continues now with an interview I recorded with Olivia Marie and Dave Jorm. Olivia is a lawyer who actually, uh, interestingly enough, just finished a six-month stint as a community manager with Bug Crowd. Uh, so she certainly had some exposure to the InfoSec world. And uh, Dave Jorm studies geology and mathematics at UQ, uh, the University of Queensland, and has worked in the software industry for around 14 years. Some of you would remember the interview I did with Dave last year about his open source intelligence analysis of North Korea. He used like remote sensing techniques and publicly available imagery to glean some fascinating insights uh, into North Korea. Do go look up that interview if you didn't hear it. Uh, and I also recorded and published his OSSERT talk on that topic last year. Well, this year he returned to OSSERT with his pal Olivia uh, to do another North Korea themed presentation. This time, the pair presented a talk about the information cordon uh, going in and out of the country, how information uh, gets in and out. Between USB thumb drives attached to homemade helium balloons to tiny radios smuggled into the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, uh, you'll hear that state control of information entering the country isn't what it used to be. And, you know, that's actually a pretty big deal. And yes, I know this isn't your typical InfoSec story, uh, but you all seem to love my interview with Dave last year, so I figured you'd want to hear about this anyway. So I sat down with both Olivia and Dave after their talk and started off by asking Olivia how the regime seeks to control information flowing into North Korea. I hope you enjoy this. Formal restriction is extraordinary. Uh, only uh, the tiniest fraction of people in the whole country have the internet and uh, telephone calls, especially mobile phone, can only be made within the country. So if you're going to go through a formal channel, that's it. You live in that bubble. And how tightly monitored are those networks? The monitoring of the telecommunications networks is, is quite comprehensive, but it really relies on the element of fear and surprise. It's, it's kind of similar to the way that um, things have been done with copyright, you know, where they say, well, we're monitoring the file sharing network and we're going to sue this lady over here for $100,000, so you better be scared that it's not you. So you're saying the most terrifying regime in, human, uh, in modern history uh, is taking a leaf out of the U.S. copyright holders' books, uh, out of their playbook, or right? maybe the other way around? Who knows? But 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 the, but the the thing that you are to be afraid of is obviously much much worse. Um, that you'll be sent to a detention camp or perhaps even executed, depending on what you're doing. So that kind of self-censoring, based on based on the possibility that there's monitoring of the communication network, is definitely a big aspect of it. Another aspect of it is even though there are internal telecommunications networks, for example, via via mobile phone and, and so on, the information that people have to express is limited. You know, if you live in an isolated uh, information bubble and you only have a domestic telephone network, there's a limited number of topics that you could actually converse with your friend about. You couldn't sit down and say, hey, have you seen what's happening in the Arab Spring? Because you don't know about it. But this is, this is what I wonder, right? Uh, like when it comes to actually censoring a telecommunications network, because even if it's just a domestic network, it's still used to pass information around that can come from outside of that network. Uh, Olivia, how on earth are they managing to keep information so tightly controlled, ignoring sort of technical controls on censorship? Just how is it possible to stop people talking about stuff like this? It's fear. Uh, so there were, uh, remember, there were some, there are some prongs of totalitarian control. Uh, one of them is fear, one of them is indoctrination. So if you start indoctrinating people from truly birth, 
then they will end up believing that uh, following what the regime wants is right, morally right. So if the regime says that you are, uh, that this is true, that you're going to go here, you're going to go there, you're not going to listen to this, um, you're going to think that, they will, and they do. The other, for all the people that slip through that net, is fear. If you're worried that you're going to be uh, imprisoned and tortured, uh, uh, quite at the discretion of the government, truly, uh, despite the fact there are supposed to be some legal protections, uh, then you will toe the line out of fear. Tantalisingly, it doesn't look like this is actually going to last, does it? Because people are finding ways to get information in and out. What do those ways look like, though? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that happened in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s, was that DVDs started to become really popular in North Korea. And you were able to get both DVD players and actual DVD discs smuggled across the border from China. One of the things that people loved to see the most on there was uh, South Korean soap operas. And this, although they don't sound like the most kind of seditious form of media, they provide a snapshot into South Korea. Of comfortable middle-class life. That's terrifying to a regime like DPRK, right? It flies in the face of the propaganda that they've instilled in people about what the situation on the ground actually is there. But DVD players are kind of flawed. One problem with DVD players is it's not so easy to trivially just copy the media and redistribute things, but also it's quite easy to get caught. They've made even owning a DVD player illegal. And one of the favourite techniques of the secret police would be to go into a building, cut the power, and then go in and raid everybody. So if you were watching a DVD, the DVD's stuck in the drive. and you That's kind of smart, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of terrifying but smart. So what, what's rapidly supplanting um, DVDs is USB sticks and other kind of... You know, portable well, it's, it, just just backtracking for a minute, you were, you guys went over uh, some some other interesting stuff. You know, in DPRK, which is, uh, you know, if you buy a radio, it's fixed to government stations. You yes. can't tune it, and they're tamper-proof. And if you get caught trying to get your radio to tune into, you know, like a South Korean broadcast or something, you're in an you're in an awful lot of trouble. Um, so yeah, now there's all sorts of stuff starting to flood into the country, like. Uh, I believe, Olivia, you mentioned miniature radios coming across on helium balloons, things like that, and now these, these USB devices. But do people actually have computers there? Well, it seems like at least some of them do, and there's a thriving market just across the border in China in really, really low-cost second-hand PCs. Obviously, people don't have a lot of hard currency to purchase these, but things that are, you know, just a few tens of dollars um, are, are very popular. And there's... Uh, there's a lot of NGOs that try and actually promulgate this stuff going into the country. So if not computers, at least the USB sticks. And they'll go and stand on the Chinese side of the border, and if a North Korean smuggler comes across, they'll give them a sack of USB sticks for free because they want to disseminate this uh, inside North Korea. A lot of Christian um, uh, missionary-type work occurs around North Korea. Uh, they have missions wherein they try to hide and and help get North Korean refugees to South Korea, um, keep them safe in, in China. Uh, they are also throw a lot of scrutiny onto the regime. Um, they righteously obsessed with it, and they're probably the ones that are working on disseminating this information and trying to find the, the smugglers and whatnot to get to get the information across the border. Ah, uh, yes, but are they just putting Bibles onto USB sticks? Great <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's some Bibles in there as well. Uh, not being able to read Korean, I, I don't quite know the 
what exact contents, but I'm sure there's that they they try to spread spread it out across a variety of different. Now, now one thing I one thing I actually asked you guys at the end of your presentation was, um, you know, we see these USB devices, uh, you know, USB keys, you know, coming over the USB thumb drives coming over the uh, border in sacks or in helium balloons or whatever. Uh, but you know, your average potato farmer probably isn't even going to have electricity, let alone something that's you know the latest copy of VLC on a on a decent computer. Uh, but you know, you walk through a computer store these days, and there are tablets that cost a hundred bucks new that are more than capable of playing media. Do you think we're going to see devices like that starting to sort of infiltrate the country? Yeah, I think that the trend towards low-cost devices is is definitely there. Olivia mentioned during our talk the example of the miniature radios being very popular because they're so cheap, so small, so easy to smuggle. So as I said, there's a market for really low-cost PCs, but I think moving forward, as you get things like second-hand tablets, give it five years, what's a second-hand iPad going to be worth? well then all of a sudden it becomes accessible to maybe not your average potato farmer but at least a significant chunk of the North Korean population. It makes it accessible to these uh, you know Christian missionaries who might pump some money into it and you know fly 10,000 iPads across the uh, across the border. Uh, Now Olivia we've we've not had a really good track record of predicting what's going to happen in North Korea. Uh, You know there was that massive famine in the 90s it, it just didn't happen. Um, the indoctrinate, you know, the, the brainwashing there is just so effective that it sort of glues the whole place together. But these days, it's a lot easier to disseminate information. It's a lot easier to get messages across. Do you think, if you had to pick something that was going to bring the regime unstuck, would you think that would be it? Uh, look, it's very hard to measure the level of information that is coming through. So, and also how far it's going. So. Although we know from surveys uh, and uh, other sources, uh, they're all secondhand or they're all all primary sources, but they're all hearsay because we don't have people on the ground actually asking these questions directly in the country. Uh, The information is out there, but we don't know the rate at which it's growing and we also do not know what is the critical mass. For sure, there is a point at which there is a critical mass. But can you get there when the restrictions are so tight? That's, or, or can they just keep it under that level? Exactly. That's what is so hard to predict, and that's why people have been making all sorts of predictions for a very long time. And for all we know, for all anybody knows, critical mass could be in 10 years, it could be in 50 years, it could be in 100 years. And truly, who knows what's going to happen in that It time. could be next week for all we know. I mean, we've got the Chinese practically building refugee camps on the border already. I mean, it, uh, it just, you know, gut feel says things could really change there, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, I think that there is that feeling, but I, I'd be sceptical about it because, as you said, they had a famine where literally millions of people were starving to death and they still managed to keep the society together. But they, 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 they had less access to information then. Do you know what I mean? It was very possible yes. for the government to come in and say, this is a worldwide thing and... Uh, you know, it's completely beyond our control and, you know, there is no, there is no way out of this. Whereas now people would be more, in, more likely to know that that was bullshit. Um, yeah. So I wonder if there was a famine again, if, you know, the outcome would be the same. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And just personally, just speculating, I would say that, no, the outcome would not be the same. People would know that there was food in China. People would know that there was China, you know. People... <laughs> Yes, I think the outcome would be would be very different. But again, it is very difficult to predict these kind of things. And I think that if you if people want to do anything to try and engage with this issue or, or, or perhaps even influence the outcome of this issue, we have to look at longer time horizons because the famine taught us that, you know, it, it could take quite some time to pan out. So things that, you know, might take 10 or 20 years to come to fruition, I don't think should be dismissed. 
because that may well be the time horizon that we're looking at, but it's really hard to say. Olivia Marie and Dave Jorm, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Thank you.